For most of us, the concept of retirement is a glorious but abstract idea. No longer shackled to the traditional work schedule, one imagines travel without limits, copious amounts of time in order to catch up on reading, and for many of us, time to help out with the grandkids or grandpups. But what about those who aren't ready to retire? Those of us that are forced into retirement. The modern-day concept of justice, even when it falls underneath the umbrella of so-called cancel culture, provides us with a number of examples to see how forced retirement can affect one's psyche. Take former Oscar winner Kevin Spacey. The actor was effectively canceled by the television and movie industry after being accused by more than 30 individuals regarding a wide range of sexual assault allegations. To be clear, Spacey publicly denies most of the accusations, many of which have been either settled by the former actor or dismissed by the courts. But after one year into his exile, the American beauty star showed off a defiant attitude. Using the voice of his House of Cards character Frank Underwood, a corrupt politician, Spacey released a video entitled, Let Me Be Frank. Embracing the persona of his character, Spacey seemingly dismisses his serious legal issues to tell the audience that they knew what they were getting into, and that they both want and need him. The tone-deaf nature of this message in a moment that came well after the establishment of the Me Too movement showcases a level of ego that is beyond anything that I could personally imagine. But Spacey was a cultural icon in a medium that remains core to American culture. He likely felt both empowered and invincible because he had been able to get away with his misbehavior for so long. But let's be frank here. Spacey only felt invincible. What if he actually had been? The usual suspect's actor has been able to call upon a legion of lawyers, PR consultants, and a retirement fund that would allow him to buy a private island and remain wealthy outside of the public eye for the rest of his life. Dictators have a few more tools at their disposal, the most common of which is the ability to purge their accusers. It was Joseph Stalin who famously quipped, no man, no problem. It also helps that through their complete control of the media, they are able to bury accusations as deeply and securely as the Soviet Union buried the still smoldering remains of the Chernobyl nuclear plant. Authoritarians have long been able to control the narrative while they have the reins of power firmly in their grasp. What happens after they leave our mortal realm? This was a central question on the mind of Mao Zedong in 1959 after he was forced to step down as the head of state for the People's Republic of China. His failed economic policies during the Great Leap Forward had resulted in mass starvation without subsequent significant economic gain. Mao Zedong was 65 years old when he stepped down from the day-to-day -day running of the country. This is the standard retirement age that most Americans have circled for the start of their retirement. But Mao hadn't stepped down by choice. He was for the moment canceled in favor of economic moderates such as Deng Xiaoping. Two years into the newish regime, the economic outlook for the country was beginning to brighten. The moderates were being proven right 
and Mao was given a glimpse into his own future. In October of 1961, as a culminating event of Nikita Khrushchev's de-Stalinization campaign, the body of Joseph Stalin was physically removed from Lenin's tomb and buried within the necropolis entombed within the wall encompassing Moscow's Red Square. The moment was marked by Bolshevik party bureaucrat Dora Abrovno Lashkino addressing the party congress. Comrades, she began, I could survive the most difficult moments only because I carried Lenin in my heart and always consulted him on what to do. Yesterday I consulted him. He was standing there before me as if he were alive, and he said, It is unpleasant to be next to Stalin, who did so much harm to the party. An aging and increasingly paranoid Mao began to wonder who would speak out against him after he passed away. What details would be made available to the public? Would they talk about the children that he abandoned? The women that he assaulted? The innocents whom he had purged in the wake of his rise? Although he was at retirement age, it had become clear that Mao would need a second revolution to ensure his position after death. This revolution was designed to elevate Chairman Mao to the status of an untouchable cultural icon a status which he hoped to retain even after his death. It began in 1966 and lasted until his demise in 1976. The death toll necessary to achieve his everlasting fame, rather than Stalin's infamy, may have been as high as 8 million. You're listening to Anarchy, Empires, and Other Notable Moments, a podcast designed for deep dives that assist in the teaching of history. This is Episode 5 regarding the life and legacy of China's most infamous dictator, Mao Zedong, the Cultural Revolution. After Mao took responsibility for the excess of the Great Leap Forward, which is the nicest way to say that I am responsible for 30 million of my own people for dying horrific deaths, three moderates, Liu Shaqi, Zhao Enlai, and Deng Xiaoping, took over the day-to-day -day operations of the country. The three men almost immediately ended the Great Leap Forward and reintroduced elements of self-interest into the economic decision-making process. Peasants were once again allowed to privately own land and sell their excess products at farmers markets for a profit. They also restored a number of government officials who had been purged during the Great Leap Period. For the most part, Mao stayed out of their way, keeping his thoughts regarding the changes to himself. Historian Roderick Macfur refers to the years that followed as a false dawn for China. But fear emerged when it became clear that his successor's policies were improving the nation. In fact, China's economy grew each year between 1962 and 1965. The growth wasn't by any great leaps or bounds, but after the three bitter years, any level of growth was a positive outcome. 
There are clear signs that Mao grew jealous of their success as early as 1962, with him muttering to anyone that would listen that the almost capitalist policies violated China's revolutionary tradition and modeled the modern revisionism that had befallen the Soviet Union. No economic sector was left untouched by the moderates, as industrialized centers began to reintroduce incentives tied to actual production, as well as removing stringent limitations on the types of artwork that could be produced. Each policy appeared to incrementally draw the nation closer and closer to the capitalist system that Mao reviled. The path that China was on was made clear in 1961, when Deng uttered the statement, I don't care if it is a black cat or a white cat, it's a good cat if it catches mice. This statement, taken to mean that Deng was willing to adopt capitalist teachings if they proved effective, worried Mao to no end. But despite his personal ideological objections, the policies were proving remarkably effective. By 1965, all economic sectors had regained a level of output similar to pre-Great Leap Forward levels. During this period of self-imposed exile, Mao stewed on the sidelines, growing increasingly worried about his own position in the party's future hierarchy. But to his credit, he mostly stayed on the periphery and let the three moderates restore the country. One wonders why the party didn't discard their revolutionary leader, who now served as a roadblock to the young nation's progress. The South China Morning Post, one of the few independent Chinese news sources based in Hong Kong, tells us that leaders like Deng Xiaoping and Li Shikui had grave misgivings about Mao's policies, but he still represented the revolution. The Communist Party brand, it was felt, could not withstand a true reckoning of Mao's mistakes in the Great Leap and other radical campaigns. So he was left to serve as a figurehead, the symbolic head of the party, but with little actual power. Since China had historically eschewed anything that resembled the big mountain of imperialism, that left international affairs as an area where it was viewed that he could cause the least harm. Thus, as party chairman, he publicly turned his attention largely to foreign policy between 1962 and 1965. This, in turn, brought Lin Bao into his inner circle, a relationship that would be immensely important to the revival of the cult of Mao. Border clashes with India had begun in 1959 after the Indian government officially took in the 14th and current Dalai Lama as a refugee after he fled the Chinese crackdown in his homeland of Tibet. To the chagrin of Mao Zedong, Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev publicly backed Indian Prime Minister-slash-authoritarian Nehru for his actions. The Sino-Indian War that followed was a rousing success for the PRC as they quickly established a demilitarized zone deep within India's eastern borders. The border between the two nations remains controversial to this very day, 
and it remains common to see clashes along the demilitarized zone between the world's two most populous countries. Zhao Enlai capitalized on the moment and openly challenged the Soviet Union's claims to ownership of the Third World by openly advocating for socialist revolutions within Africa. He even had the audacity to believe that he could drive a wedge between allied states France and America by establishing formal relations with Paris and Albania. The bold moves were enabled by Khrushchev's increasingly erratic behavior on the international stage. In 1956, Khrushchev had forced the West to back down over the Suez Canal by convincing them that he was willing to nuke London. This early incident would prove to be the high point in the foreign policy of Stalin's successor. His star diminished quickly. In 1959, he visited the United States and threw a fit after it was determined that he wouldn't be allowed to visit Disneyland over security concerns. In 1960, he took off his shoe and began banging it on the table to make a point at the United Nations. The oversized reaction occurred after the Filipinos truthfully asserted that the Eastern European nations of the Soviet bloc were being deprived of their rights and liberties. Next, he supported India, a non-communist state, over China at the beginning of 1962 before capitulating to the Americans in October of 1962 during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Although Khrushchev had successfully negotiated the removal of the American nuclear weapons from Turkey, it was his backing down on Cuba that is most remembered. In part because of these acts, the People's Republic of China began to view the USSR as an increasingly unreliable partner. Although they didn't yet have an economy that could challenge any of the first world nations, they began to act diplomatically as if they were the second pole in the Cold War's bipolar world. This began a policy of self-reliance, a recycled term that had been previously used to describe each individual commune during the Great Leap Forward. China developed its own nuclear weapons in 1964, and began to increase and modernize its military forces, despite a complete lack of external threats. Lin Bao was the man in charge of the military buildup, and he made sure that it put the formerly disgraced Mao Zedong at the front and center in the thoughts of each and every recruit. Lin was the brains behind the publication of the book Quotations from Chairman Mao, which became commonly referred to as the Little Red Book. The news source, The Conversation, points out that the purpose of the Little Red Book was to distill the voluminous products of Mao's mind and pen into a small volume that even a semi-literate peasant or new soldier could read, memorize, or set to music. The aphorisms therein were plucked out of context and strung together without much regard for chronology. If it was Mao's thought, it must be coherent, went the editorial idea. The book contains 33 chapters and 427 quotes by the chairman. Lin knew exactly what he was doing. As defense secretary, he remodeled the nation's military forces based upon political criteria, rather than any form of meritocracy. In fact, he eliminated rank altogether in order to make the organization more socialist. 
any member that was viewed as sympathetic to the declining power that was the Soviet Union were purged, and the remaining soldiers were immediately indoctrinated in Mao Zedong thought. This involved part-time work within either the fields of industry or agriculture. It became mandatory to always carry a copy of the Little Red Book, and advancement through the military was now determined by how effectively they professed loyalty to the chairman's ideals. In private, Lin admitted that each of these reforms would only weaken the People's Liberation Army. But each action pleased Mao and brought Lin closer to the chairman's inner circle. In 1963 began Mao's long-awaited comeback. There were two precursors to the events of the Cultural Revolution. First, Mao introduced the Socialist Education Movement. This propaganda campaign obligated Chinese citizens to read three of Mao's earlier works, In Memory of Norman Bethune, Serve the People, and The Foolish Old Man Who Removed the Mountains. The books were taught quizzed on, and turned into artwork designated for display throughout Chinese cities. The second 1963 policy that set the stage for the Cultural Revolution was entitled Learn from the People's Liberation Army. The distribution of Chairman Mao's quotations borrows deeply from Confucianism's Analects. This second propaganda campaign would draw from China's other major religion, Taoism. In similar ways to Taoist founder Lao Tzu, we have no way of verifying that PLA soldier Li Feng ever existed as more than just an ideal. Li supposedly died as a result of a telephone pole falling on him when he was just 22 years old. Upon his death, Lin Bao supposedly found and then published the young soldier's personal diary. The story that flows out from the private work contains more than 200,000 words, and each one serves to positively enhance the reputation of Mao Zedong. The People's Daily, a mouthpiece of the CCP to this very day, published an editorial in 1993 about the value that Li contributed then and continues to provide to Mao's legacy, stating that, when Li Feng died in the line of duty, he was only 22, but his short life gives concentrated expression to the noble ideals of a new people, nurtured with the communist spirit and also to the noble moral integrity and values of the Chinese people in the new period. These are firm faith in communist ideals, political warm-heartedness for the party and the socialist cause, the revolutionary will to work arduously for self-improvement, and moral quality and self-cultivation of showing fraternal unity and taking pleasure in assisting others. The heroic spirit of being ready to take up the cudgels for a just cause without caring for one's safety. The attitude of seeking advancement and studying hard, and the genuine spirit of matching words with deeds and enthusiastically carrying out one's duties. Mao used the newfound cult of Li Fang to enhance his own personality cult, successfully rehabilitating his own image. In 1964, Mao published a new writing entitled 
on Khrushchev's phony communism and its historical lessons for the world. The document made the argument that China has been led astray by the Soviet Union, which suffered greatly from the third of Maoism's big mountains, bureaucratic capitalism. In other words, individuals like Nikita Khrushchev were only communist in name, improperly using their government roles to enrich themselves at the expense of the proletariat. Since the USSR had quote-unquote led China astray, it was necessary to implement a revolutionary re-education campaign. As party chairman, Mao would ensure that he and he alone was in charge of the campaign's curriculum. The campaign that was officially referred to as the Great Proletarian Cultural Revolution began with the publication of the May 16th Directive, which insinuated that the party had been infiltrated by counter-revolutionary revisionists who were in the midst of plotting a new dictatorship of the bourgeoisie. It escalated on June 1st when the party's official newspaper urged its readers to clear away the evil habits of the old society by launching an all-out assault on monsters and demons. The easiest way to identify these monsters was to test their loyalty to Chairman Mao. Those who were working against the ideals that had been expressed in the now universally memorized earlier works of Mao were demonized and cast out of his communist paradise. In July, Mao showed that he was up for the fight by organizing a swim across the Yangtze. This propaganda moment is absurd when you watch newsreels of the event. The incredibly buoyant Mao, who was 72 at this point in time, had already swum the Yangtze River, China's largest river, 11 times prior. The video of the event shows Mao floating along while multiple army battalions in full military regalia attempt to swim as if they are marching, with their heads bobbing up in unison as they float with the current. In other moments, peasant collectives who have built rafts so that they can float propaganda slogans about the greatness of Maoism hover nearby. There is even one soldier who created a wooden plank so that his machine gun could float in front of him, presumably showcasing that the army will be there whenever and wherever Mao needs it. The stunt was designed to show the Chinese that Mao still had the revolutionary fire of his youth. But it was a stunt. The party's mouthpiece, the People's Daily, claimed that Mao swam nine miles in just under an hour's time. If accurate, that means that Mao swam twice as fast as China's 2012 Olympic champion Sun Yang. Not too shabby for a 72-year-old who never liked to take a bath. The South China Morning Post makes a direct connection to the successful swim to the violent escalation that would soon come during the Cultural Revolution, stating that, quote, The symbolism of his feet was lost on no one. Mao had served notice that he was fit and ready for battle, political or physical. Within weeks, he had made his way to Beijing, calling on his followers to bombard the headquarters and oppose the leadership of Li Shiqi. In late August, he began hosting rallies of a million supporters or more in Tiananmen Square. Mao was returned to power, and he and his supporters wielded that power recklessly and ruthlessly for the better part of a decade. 
Lu Shaqi was the first prominent leader to be taken down by the Cultural Revolution. Mao championed open criticism as his primary weapon, similar to what occurred during the onset of the Great Leap Forward where landlords were expected to publicly admit all wrongdoings. Rather than waiting for individuals to self-criticize themselves, Mao instilled a revolutionary fervor into the youthful adherents of Maoism, a group that became known as the Red Guards. These men and women were largely university students that had grown up in an education system that was dominated by pro-Mao propaganda. Their goal was to first make China Maoist from the inside out, so that they could then fulfill Marx's prophecy of communism consuming the globe. Mao's fourth and final wife, Zheng Qing, would embrace the term and provided the organization's first red armbands to identify the Red Guard's acceptance of Maoism. The protests began inside of the field of education, with students publishing large Diazbo posters that called out any behavior that was deemed to be counter-revolutionary, essentially behaving in an even more extreme way to that of modern-day cancel culture. According to the students, the universities were hiding bourgeoisie old tendencies. Lu Shaqi attempted to rein in the students and protect the institutions, but the event played out as just another battle in the behind-the-scenes fight between Mao and his publicly proclaimed successor. School leaders immediately lost control to the mob. Mao ordered schools to be closed in order to give the students more time to protest. His national radio addresses and published articles gave full legitimacy to the movement, even when the student protests got out of hand and resulted in violence. Teachers and building administrators became the first targets of their former students' wrath. There are innumerable accounts of incidents where professors were forced to sit in a corner wearing a dunce camp. During this time, their students began to paint their professor's face with ink, while simultaneously taunting and spitting on them in the name of Chairman Mao. As the violence of the Cultural Revolution escalated, Mao directed the overzealous students against his internal enemies. Liu and Deng Xiaoping were removed from their government positions after being labeled by Mao as capitalist rotors with Liu being identified as the biggest rotor in the party. In 1967, he was placed under house arrest and officially expelled from the party in 1968. Although he disappeared from public view for long periods of time, he was from time to time brought forth at key moments in order to serve the party as a living target for the Cultural Revolution. During this time, he was regularly beaten and denied important life-saving medicine. In 1969, Liu was publicly charged as a criminal traitor, enemy agent, and scab in the service of the imperialists, modern revisionists, and Kumoteng reactionaries. He died soon afterwards. After coming to power in 1978, Deng Xiaoping rehabilitated the image of his friend and fellow target of the Red Guards. 
It seems that Liu's only crime had been in successfully leading the nation in its recovery from Mao's economic policies. Declaring Liu Shiqi a great Marxist and proletarian revolutionary, Deng pardoned him and informed all of the CCP that the evidence against him had been fraudulent. He knew firsthand the damage that the Chinese mob could inflict. Deng had been identified as the second leading capitalist rotor, and he and his wife were also placed under house arrest in 1967. And while they were protected from violence, they weren't immune to criticism. In fact, Mao forced Deng, under the assumed penalty of death, to write his own self-criticisms, a novelette about every sin to the revolutionary cause that had been committed in his name. In 1968, his son was pushed out a second-story window by Red Guards, who were there to criticize his father. Although the boy survived the fall, he would live the rest of his life unnecessarily in a paralyzed state. The first two hospitals had refused to treat him after finding out who his father was. The third doctor finally treated the young man for his injuries and strongly believed that if he had only been brought to him sooner, he would have been able to restore the young man's spinal cord. Things escalated even further for Deng's family in 1969, as both he and his stepmother were sent in for the official Mao Zedong thought re-education and physical labor for their crimes. Surprisingly, he was able to retain his party membership and a level of status befitting a man who had survived the long march. His labor involved work as a low-level mechanist, and Old Deng, as he was referred to, earned the respect of all of those who were around him. Army members living on the first floor of his apartment kept him safe from Red Guards who might want to make a name for themselves. The locals moved to the side of the road in order to let him pass each day on his way to and from work. This and his hour-long mandatory readings from the writings of Chairman Mao seemed to have a calming effect on China's future leader. He was afforded significant time working on his vegetable garden and was able to decrease his daily drinking to just one glass of wine at lunch and his smoking down to a pack each week. He even managed to cut out sleeping pills from his daily routine. His forced retirement seemed to suit him for the moment. But this doesn't mean that it was pleasant. On Deng's 80th birthday, one of his children anonymously penned an editorial in the People's Daily. They describe his ordeal, telling us that he operated a lathe in a tractor factory, lived in a brick house with no heat, grew cabbages and beans to feed his family, and read Marx and Lenin late into the night. Four of his children were also sent to re-education camps in the countryside, constantly kept under guard. Mao's successors bore the literal pain of the revolution, but the targets soon became more symbolic in nature. Red Guards were encouraged to destroy the Four Olds in order to reinvigorate the revolution. These Olds included customs, habits, culture, and thinking. Mao had essentially just declared war on his nation's 3,000-year-old history. Temples, works of art, and books were destroyed with enthusiasm. 
with the army having already been indoctrinated to Maoism, there was no one left to restore order to the chaos that followed. Not even Confucius was held sacred to the Red Terror. The cemetery bearing his name was attacked by a contingent from Beijing Normal University, and corpses were hung naked from trees at the front gates. Guidelines that had been implemented in order to ensure that persuasion rather than physical violence were the main weapons utilized by the guards. But in the euphoria of the moment, the activists bulldozed the guidelines and performed their tasks as violently as possible. One Red Guard reveals to us in his memoirs that the heaviest blow to me was the killing of my beloved teacher Chen Gut. He had been imprisoned and tormented by class bullies. I was powerless to stop them, and besides, it was reactionary even to try to protect someone. Those final words point to where the ex excess of the movement came from. Reactionary was a term for a capitalist rotor, meaning that the simple act of defending someone who had been accused, be it through words or actions, would ensure that you became the next target of the mob. In the Cultural Revolution, it was either denounce or be denounced. Another Red Guard tells us about their justifications for assaulting their principal. At heart, he writes, I was struggling with myself. Our principal had been very good to me. If I turned against him, I would be acting against my own conscience. On the other hand, if I wanted to enter a university, I needed political capital which I could only acquire by attacking the power holders. Mao first lost control of the mob in 1968 after radicals had assumed control of portions of the government and began to appoint their own chosen diplomats around the world. Mao even had to order the PLA to open fire on protesters during an uprising at Qingshao University. The massacre resulted in five deaths and 149 injured. But the military didn't have clear directives regarding the movement. At times, the armed forces enabled the Red Guards by facilitating troop movements to aid the organization of rallies. Lin Bao even allowed the Red Guard to raid military barracks from time to time without punishment. The military had firm orders, however, to never let them into the Forbidden City, or too close to the chairman himself. During the later portions of the 1960s, the party sought to purify class ranks by ensuring that remaining party members had no ties to neither the West nor China's original landlord class. The new party members, new traditions, new customs, and new threats had successfully replaced the four olds. Mao had successfully purged the reformists who had succeeded in the wake of his failures. He had shown that he retained the ability to unleash a mob at a target of his choice, whether it was his second-in-command or a popular high school principal. The people of China had proven to be just as willing to destroy their own history as they had been to kill off all of China's sparrows a decade earlier. Far from the sideline that he had been stranded upon, the Cultural Revolution had established Mao as a demigod, with peasants literally offering prayers to Mao before each and every meal.
along with Lin Bao, Mao's final wife, Zheng Qing, deserves much of the credit for Mao's second coming. Jing is an accomplished actress by trade and got involved with Mao while he was still married to He Zhehen, the girl with two guns. The problem that his marriage status posed was rectified when Mao had the mother of five of his children committed to a mental institution. The courtship of Mao and Zhang was filled with backroom intrigue. The party was deeply concerned with the optics, namely Mao being 45 years her senior, the fact that she was a wealthy actor, as well as the tawdry detail that this latest courtship had again begun as an affair. Mao was given party permission to obtain a divorce and new marriage license only on the condition that Zhang stayed behind the scenes for 20 years at a minimum. The Cultural Revolution began 28 years into their marriage. Zhang used her previous experience to become the director of film in the Central Propaganda Department and a member of the Ministry of Culture Steering Committee for the film industry. From these roles, she gleefully led the arts in elevating her husband to God status. As the Cultural Revolution progressed and more and more seats opened up within the Politburo, she was elevated in party status. And in 1969, it could be confidently said that she was one of the leading voices within the country. She initially used this power to get back at all of her critics from her prior career as an actress. The third of the moderates who had taken over after the Great Leap Forward was one of the men caught in her crosshairs, as she personally directed the Red Guards to torture Zhao and Lai's adopted son and daughter. After years at each other's throats, Zhao and Lai passed away in 1976. Upon the popular politician's passing, Zhang added a cherry on top of the moment by instituting the Five No's campaign, which publicly stipulated that all loyal Chinese party members would just say no to mourning Zhao. As is true with any of China's history from this period, the numbers regarding this period of time are particularly hard to pin down. Experts tell us that anywhere between 500,000 to more than 2 million Chinese lost their lives during the Cultural Revolution. We know about the excess violence that was inherent to the movement, but the combination of what we do know plus what we know that we don't know creates a problematic gray area. For instance, we know that thousands of cats were brutally murdered after they were determined to be an example of bourgeoisie decadence. If they were willing to round up, murder cats, and then leave them in the streets, then what else were they willing to do? James Baker is one of those who purports to bring the Cultural Revolution's crimes to poetic justice. Banker isn't a historian, but rather an attorney by trade. In his blog post about the Cultural Revolution, he mixes in what is known with what is possible, confidently claiming that, quote, students were encouraged to turn on their classmates amid the hysteria teachers, professors, and intellectuals did not dare to stand up to the students or defend their colleagues, lest they suffer similar fates. But they could not escape by being bystanders. 
with every word and action becoming potential evidence of capitalist sympathy, teachers and intellectuals enthusiastically joined their students in the struggle sessions and screaming rallies. Now all of this for sure happened, but Banker continues with what I would refer to as opinionated speculation. He begins, With undeveloped mental immune systems, the students' soft skulls were fertile ground for Mao's secular teachings of light and darkness, good and evil, right and wrong, radical and reactionary. There is no middle way became a popular slogan. Thus, Mao's child revolutionaries could, with youthful exuberance and clarity of purpose, chain a teacher to a radiator and bludgeon him to death with an iron bar, or force a teacher to eat nails and feces, among other tortures. Eating human flesh, Banker continues surreally, became a macabre proof of loyalty. The party's own investigations tell of students in the Ganji province cooking and eating their teachers and principals. In some government cafeterias, the bodies of executed traitors were displayed on meat hooks while their flesh was served and consumed. The blank slate, it seems, can be a dark abyss. Indeed, the nature and scale of the harms caused by the Cultural Revolution almost defy comprehension." End quote. Beyond the human suffering and elevation of Mao to the top of China's power structure, there were a number of other effects from the Cultural Revolution. The first was a lack of economic growth caused by a decade's worth of bureaucratic inertia. Effective leaders such as Deng Xiaoping and Liu Shaqi were made to suffer because of policies that had been implemented under their direction. This had a significant chilling effect on surviving members of the government Fearful that their own policies would later be identified as anti-revolutionary, they stopped championing their own ideas. This inertia dragged the progress of China's government to a screeching halt. They even had trouble implementing their prior responsibilities as they experienced trouble delivering the people's goods and services as the Red Guards caused constant disruptions throughout the land. Struggle sessions, another term for mob justice, would shut down entire factories in order to criticize those deemed as oppositional to the revolution. These would pop up unexpectedly and last for days at a time. Chain gang work teams, which were sent out as a part of re-education campaigns, were forgotten about by the bureaucracy that had punished them. The men and women were forced to toil aimlessly while anxiously awaiting news as to when their punishment would end. Marissa Bryan's honor thesis for Coastal Carolina University tells us that the carry-on effect of the policies were a crippling of the economy. A disruption in labor and production was caused by participation in the revolution and the removal of these groups from the labor pool, which also contributed to the economic decline. China. Having a non-market economy was unable to adapt to the labor and production shortages, as the economy is dependent on coordination between administrations and trade organizations. Thus, when the relations between the groups are interrupted, it causes the entire economic system to suffer and decline. 
economic output severely declined and directly contributed to the fall of the economy. Although the Cultural Revolution won't officially end until Mao's death in 1976, he tried to rein in the movement in the 1970s by limiting the term counter-revolutionary to only those who would publicly criticize Mao and or the Cultural Revolution. Still, within 10 months of the change, 2 million were persecuted as counter-revolutionaries, infiltrators, or traitors. Almost 300,000 of these were either imprisoned or killed. The excesses of this continuous revolution were dragging the country backwards. Once Mao had returned to the driver's seat, even he wanted it to end. But once unleashed, the mob often controls itself, and Mao was powerless to rein in the violence that once again brought him to power. We will talk further about the end of the Cultural Revolution and the death of Mao in our final episode regarding the life and legacy of Mao Zedong.